Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Captain Brian Schiff is here to join me for an evening of bad decisions where we will swap stories and talk about the lessons we've each learned in spite of our failings during our years of flying. Before we get started, a couple of things from Social Flight. First of all, our Fly to Win Challenge is in full gear as we race to the new year. And so you have an opportunity to win a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. Just get uh, the free Social Flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices and just check in at your home airport as you fly at any other airports. And we have a drawing you will win or could win a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. In addition to that, our social flight uh, show, Social Flight Live, is now available via pro podcast. Just go and check out uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be able to just do a search for Social Flight, one word, and that will bring it up, and you can see all the wonderful shows that we have here. And lastly, as we approach the new year, be sure to get more wings credits and other things by going to socialflight.com and checking out our FAA learning system. This is a separate area of videos and courses that are available within Social Flight. It's automatically connected to the FAA's fast team system, FAA safety, and that uh, you can take courses, you get a quiz at the end, and then uh, you can get credit towards wings. If you're a mechanic, there are uh, credits there for AMT, Aviation Maintenance Technician courses. And if you are a mechanic with an inspection authorization, then you can actually use that system in order to print, uh, take courses, get credit, and print certificates that you can use to, towards your IA renewal. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Avidyne, which has certainly been one of my best decisions for avionics in our aircraft, as opposed to some of the stories we're going to tell tonight. And um, I just want to show you, I just upgraded uh, 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 as part of this. We're using this in the Mustang with an IFD 550 and also in our Bonanza where we have a stack there. And I absolutely love these systems. Uh, and they even include these uh, keyboards, this little like mobile keyboard, which is wonderful, um, that you can just type in your identifier you're looking for right there from the yoke. You can control everything from that. It's so, so easy to use. We're gonna use it in the Mustang, as I mentioned, and look for a new video coming out on our YouTube channel where we're gonna show you a very, very cool feature that is built into our IFD in the Mustang. You're gonna be able to see that video coming out shortly. Um, the last thing I want to say before we get started tonight is we are kicking off as we uh, enter, go into soon December, towards the end of this week, uh, our very special thing that we uh, offer, which is a uh, fundraiser for Social Flight. And it is this uh, wonderful thing, which is a 3D Mustang, as you can see here in this, uh, in this globe, that you can get, all you have to do is send an email to us. We are doing this. It's $99 that includes shipping and it gets you this wonderful lit globe with a Mustang. It comes in a beautiful gift box. 
and uh, help support us here at Social Flight. And so we have very limited number of these in order to, uh, to use for our fundraiser. So please just send an, if you're interested in this, send an email to info at socialflight.com. We'll get it, send you a link. You can complete it as long as uh, we're not out yet of stock uh, for that. So uh, anyway, uh, just wanted to kick things off here with that. Let me now introduce my very good friend, Brian Schiff. Brian Schiff is an airline pilot, a flight instructor, and one of the most innovative educators in general aviation. As you might imagine from his last name, he's the son of Barry Schiff, and although the apple didn't fall far from the tree, Brian has carved out a very unique reputation on his ability to teach complex procedures and concepts in a way that even a pilot like me can understand. I'm absolutely thrilled to call him a close friend. Let me bring him on the line now, and please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Brian Schiff. Hi, hey how are you doing, Brian? Good, good to be here, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm great. Thank you so much for doing this really, really fun uh, program here, which uh, is gonna probably uh, have both of us telling a few embarrassing stories. Maybe we can learn a little something from it. Yeah, I, definitely. I think the only mistakes, the true mistakes are those from which we fail to learn. There's a great quote about that somewhere, but uh, I agree with you. And also, I have one of your globe lights. The night light thing is beautiful. I get a lot of comments on it in my office. Uh, so if anybody wants one of those, uh, you'll, you'll, you won't regret buying it. Plus, the box is really good for, you know, I used it to give my wife a gift. <laughs> honey i got you another aircraft model <laughs> we can you can keep it in my office exactly exactly that's awesome so um brian you know we when we came up with the idea of this we each realized there are so many stories that get get told over um, perhaps over a beer uh, about so many goofy things and and bad decisions that we've made over the years and others have made and how we can learn from some of this I, I want to kick it off with something that I, I think doesn't get talked about enough, and that is the fear of getting in trouble as a, as a cause, as a reason for putting ourselves at risk. Um, do you have any stories that have to do with that concept? You know, I, Jeff, you asked me if I could have, if I had any decisions I thought were bad, and I, I thought long and hard. You know, I, I got nothing. I mean, you must have... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you've made only good decisions at yeah. least that's what I want everyone in row 33b to, uh, to to believe that's right that's right yeah no we've all done these things and those people who have gotten in accidents we can learn from them but we can also learn from the same mistakes we've made and didn't get into an accident you know maybe we lucked out or uh made a, a good decision to follow the bad one to cancel it but yeah i i had one where i was afraid of getting in trouble and um course maybe I shouldn't tell it here tonight because my instructor may be watching but when I was a student pilot uh, you know you, you had to stay within a 25 nautical mile ring of your home airport unless you got a specific sign off to fly across country or a flight to a different airport well I was flying one day and uh, I decided it would be fun to fly down to uh, uh, Orange County my Girlfriend was playing tennis. I thought I'd circle around down there and check it out. This is from Santa Monica. So I exceeded the 25 nautical miles. I'm not proud of that fact. It was a poor choice, a decision that I made. But, uh, and again, against all rules. And I wouldn't, there's a very important reason for that rule. And I sh I'm not advocating that student pilots do that either. I, and I regret it. But flying back, 
was, you know, probably flying for about two hours and with a three and a half hour endurance on the airplane, uh, that's all fine and good. But as I'm turning and flying over the LAX corridor and I'm looking down at LA and made a turn, I made a turn such that the shadow of something was moving across my leg because the sun was now right over my shoulder. And I'm like, what is that? Is it like cloud or something? I look back up there and I see a, a lot of fluid coming off the top of the wing on the back. Uh, and so obviously I had a fuel leak. How long had it been leaking? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. It could have been the whole time. How much fuel do I have? I don't know. It's a Cetabria. I'd never, I couldn't even remember where the fuel gauges were because, you know, I take off full and I got three and a half hours. Well, I look at the fuel gauges and they're indicating about a quarter and the other one had a little bit more. And, but the thing is, you don't know. And I'm right overhead LAX, right? I mean, what would be the best decision there just to land right away? Uh, but I did. I was afraid of getting in trouble because I shouldn't have been there in the first place where I had been uh, and so on. So as I was afraid of getting in trouble with my flight instructor, with my dad, of course, I don't know if he ever heard this story. <laughs> now he's probably going to, you know, let me get, let me have it. But uh, I decided to proceed on to Santa Monica. Now, granted, it was only another, you know, five or six miles, but still not the best decision in the world. I'm right over the top of two mile long runway, but I'm going to milk it on in to uh, another airport when I don't know how much fuel I have. So that's a bad decision. And uh, when I landed on, we saw how much fuel went in the tanks and um, I had more in the right, but the left one had leaked down pretty good. And the fuel cap only had one out of the two tabs underneath the lip. So that's why it was leaking. It's a no kidding rule. If you don't get your fuel cap on right, it definitely is going to leak. Uh, valuable lesson. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously, you know, we're not in, endorsing any of these things that the stories that we're going to tell tonight, they all come from things that, that we wish we hadn't done. Sometimes they're a little funny, but uh, at the end of the day, the goal here is is to, uh, to learn from it and figure that out. You know, it's funny, I, that story being both about fuel uh, and about getting in trouble reminds me of one also that happened to me many, many years ago when uh, I went on a trip to uh, Montreal. And uh, I remember getting, looking at getting back, it was VFR, this was in a Grumman, and, um, and I looked at the fuel price there, and it was some insane multiple of any rational dollars that you would have at my home airport. And, and I looked at how much fuel it was going to take me, and it looked reasonable. It looked like, okay, I've got, uh, you know, definitely uh, maybe 30, 45 minutes of reserve on my on my trip vfr however i did see that there was some weather coming and i'd probably have to skirt around and so i didn't get didn't get fuel and red flag red flag <laughs> yes exactly now red flag red flag oh, hindsight yeah exactly so so i took off now that would be you know maybe not as big a deal enough but i this was also I hadn't done many international flights. And when I talked to customs, which I did to make an appointment, they were so strict and, and very rigid saying, look, you've got to arrive within 15 minutes of the time that you be, you, you tell us you're going to be there. You have to arrive at the airport. You told us you're going to come to stay in the plane, blah, blah, blah. So I was, I was really on edge of doing things exactly right for customs. So as I'm coming back, I had to divert around this weather and ended up getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I didn't have a weather problem per se, but I ended up having fuel problem because of all this diverting. I could have stopped at a bunch of places along the way, but I hadn't researched anywhere or the legalities of going to any of these other places. I had just been 
worried and fear of getting in trouble about customs. So you're coming in I from another country. You can't just divert to any airport. So it's a valid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I guess there may have been options. You, you fill me in after this, but the, what, what I ended up doing, I probably, I could have gone to Burlington. I could have gone to other places, but I went all the way to Hanscom and I'm watching my fuel level go down and I'm calculating, I'm figuring this out. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I am, I'm going to just barely make it. I was scared to death, came in there, did make it in, didn't have a problem, but the fuel with the fueler that came in and fueled up the plane said, he could say to me afterwards said, how many gallons does this plane hold? And I told him how many gallons the plane held. And he said, that's how many gallons I put in. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Yeah. So that, that, that was clearly a bad decision. And, um, and it was driven solely by being so scared of getting in trouble with customs. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of us get that fear of authority, uh, whether it be a you know customs. I mean, you know, they're going to let you into the country. They obviously have a lot of authority, uh, air traffic control, or uh, I can't, countless others. That police, if you if you fear the authority like that, then you will, you're being may not do the right thing. I mean, you were afraid of getting in trouble. I was afraid of getting in trouble and uh, flew longer than than you should have, and I did as well. But uh, you know, customs wise, you can go to any other airport with customs. It's not that strict. I mean, if you have to in the, an emergency land, I mean, if you had an engine failure, would you not land and you'd continue? No, I mean, there are going to be times when you have to divert and it, it, preferably it would be good to pre-flight where, which customs airports are along your route. But uh, as far as the fuel, you know, it, you talked about the fuel price. So I'm curious, how much did you save by, by not topping off? Not the cost of the plane if I had become a glider. I'll well, tell you yeah. that. There's that. And, and I'm in a minority, but I don't consider the cost of fuel. I don't consider, I mean, it's, if you get into aviation and you're concerned about money, it just doesn't jive. Those two things don't mix, you know. Uh, you're going to spend a lot in aviation. And I had many of uh, old captains tell me when I was a co-pilot, you know how to make a small fortune in aviation? I said, no, how? He goes, you start with a big one. <laughs> but well, the moral is I don't care about fuel prices. I top off. I just, you know, if it's cost more, it costs more. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think obviously I consider myself a cheap pilot. Probably there's probably a lot of cheap pilots out there. So probably for me, I guess there's a happy medium, which is choose fly intentionally to the cheapest airport for to get your gas, but then top off, always try to top off. <laughs> right, right. Now, a better plan would have been find a cheaper airport locally or nearby and then make the long flight or something. But you don't want to have to plan on getting fuel toward the end. And of course, the yeah. forecast weather that you encountered and the fear of, you know, upsetting customs. I mean, you know, you have to think the mindset, I'm happy to be alive enough to get in trouble. If I get yeah. in trouble, I get in trouble, but I'm definitely going to be alive and I want to do the right thing, that which is the most mm -hmm. safe thing to do. Let me ask you about what you teach for having to do with assertiveness with air traffic control, because as, as many times as I've learned it and tried to get more and more and better about this, uh, being assertive with ATC, I've continuously uh, had experiences maybe once every few years where I've been put in that position. Usually it's weather related uh, where they, for reasons of their sectors and their own control planning, really pressure me to turn towards weather 
that I don't want to be, especially in IMC. Uh, and it, it, it can get to the point sometimes where you really have to put your foot down to not do something, or they tell you they're going to have to drop you or they push something. Again, I want to say 99% of the time, that isn't how air traffic controllers work. They're right. usually great. But every once in a while, I've run into one that's really tried to put paint me into a corner of kind of threatening me what's going to happen to my flying and my route if I don't do what they need me to do. Well, the thing is, you're still steering the airplane, so you're flying in your route ultimately is up to you. I think it's important to, you know, be familiar with the word unable. I'm just, hey, I'm unable to do that. But another thing that has helped is to meet controllers and talk to them. And you realize they're just humans too. And because they're just humans, they, they can mess up and they, can, they also are very good at adapting to mm-hmm. a different situation. Um, what their job is to separate aircraft and they're going to put you where they think is best to separate aircraft. And if you don't think that's best, your job is to fly the aircraft safely. If you can't do what they ask, they fully expect you. You're required, actually, by regulation to say unable uh, to comply with that clearance. Give me a different one. And, and most controllers, all controllers, will be ready to issue an alternate plan if needed. And I think understanding that they're not there to try and put you in the weather or, you know, even though they might sound intimidating, their goal is to keep everybody separated. Your goal is to do it the right way and keep your flight safe. If you have to stay unable, they'll change the plan. They'll, they'll find another way. And, and I've experienced mm-hmm. that. But I think if for all my students, I, I let them see that. And, uh, and the assertiveness, I think, can be taught. But also, like I said, knowing them and knowing what their objective is uh, can help a pilot to be assertive with ATC. But also knowing that a lot of controllers aren't pilots mm-hmm. and they don't know what you're going through. Some are, but if most of them are not pilots and so they don't understand uh, why you can't do something, they don't know what your airplane's capable of and they don't know what you're looking at out of your window. Uh, so I mm-hmm. think understanding that they're not pilots, you're the expert on that, uh, should also help a pilot be assertive when needed. I remember you told me a, a story, maybe you can convey that to, to tell that for everybody here. Uh, having to do with flying with your dad that that really taught you a little bit about kind of going against what might you might think is right and wrong about the rules. Yeah, so that, that kind of goes along with what I was saying. If a, a student learning to fly can witness it, and I got to do that on a family vacation. We were flying a, a, a Cessna 414 uh, back to Los Angeles from one of the state parks in Wyoming, and uh, Thunderstorms were building up faster than we had anticipated. Uh, you know, my father was flying. I was in the right seat. You know, we took turns, but he was flying. We were getting VFR flight following. And the thunderstorms built up in front of us. We had to go left. They're building up to the right. And behind us, turning around wasn't an option. We, our options were really limited out over the desert that day with the monsoon situation going on. Our only option was, you know, heading to the left. ATC came and asked on that radio and asked uh, if we had a, if my father was instrument capable uh, and if the aircraft was instrument and he said affirmative but i'm not letting you give me a clearance in because it was towering cumulus mm-hmm. you know he was wanting to give us a clearance into the clouds that we're looking at but there was no way and immediately said no we're unable to do that he says well uh we don't have any other options for you here and he says well i'm you know we're 
I need to go left. I watched my father, I heard my father say that. ATC said, no, you can't, that's restricted airspace. He says, yes, I can. I'm squawking 7700 and declaring an emergency and we're going through the airspace. And wow, that was fun. We got a little formation flying with some military aircraft. We <laughs> got through it. We got, we got back to uh, Santa Monica and they gave us a phone number. My dad called and I remember uh, after he hung up, it was a very short call and the controller apologized because he said, had he climbed us a thousand feet, we would have been above the ceiling of the restricted airspace. And he didn't think of that and he apologized to us, but no reports had to be filed. We got what we needed. We flew safely. We didn't go into thunderstorms. The airplane doesn't know it's in restricted airspace. It flies just as easily in, in restricted airspace as it does in, in uncontrolled airspace. So doing the right thing kept us safe. And, and he declared that emergency and having watched that and how simple it was, he just said it matter of factly, uh, there's no argument here. I'm in command. This is what I'm going to do. And then there were no repercussions from that. And I've declared several emergencies or been assertive with ATC when I had to, and there've been no repercussions except the safety factor was high. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great lesson right in it, in and of itself. Yeah. Um, you know, another topic that, that comes up having to do with poor decision-making starts when you don't do much planning or you don't do the planning maybe that you should do. Um, I recall flying with a, a very good friend of mine here at Social Flight uh, on a trip back where we looked up an airport. We were coming in at night and we're going to go in and, and get fuel. And I remember coming in and, 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 you know, trying, can't get the lights on, can't get the lights on at the airport. And lo and behold, of course, we had never researched the details to know that the lights were not on the, the frequency at the local yeah. air, airport there. We, we eventually figured it out, but not after like a, <laughs> a lot of stress and, and circling over a dark airport for, in, in this case, again, another bad decision of not having done that, wow. um, it, it, which, which at some point started to get disorienting. So, I mean, that was one I've, I would never want to do before. Uh, have you had anything like that happen to you? Uh, no, <laughs> never. Yeah. In fact, I've had, uh, uh, a situation where I didn't check the notams cause I was pre-flighting in a hurry and this was actually an airliner flight, I will say, but it's well beyond the statute of limitations. So there's, <laughs> there's no need for anybody to go turning me in for anything, but I decided to read the notams en route instead of, you know, because we're in a hurry to go. So I'm reading the notams. We're going from, uh, I think it was from St. Louis to Boise, Idaho. And I look at the notams and blah, 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 Boise, Idaho. Runway will be closed from blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah. And I said, what's our ETA? I look at the flight plan. Like, oh, no. So the runway was closed. I missed it. My dispatcher missed it. So it got that arrow snuck through a couple holes in the Swiss cheese. And so I called our dispatcher and I said, hey, the runway is closed. And Boise, what, what are we going to do? And uh, he says, oh, gosh. And luckily, I, I mean, if we'd have got to Boise, we were VFR, beautiful weather. So we didn't have an alternate, nor did we have the fuel for an alternate. But we had VFR, you know, IFR's 45-minute reserve in the tanks. It was a little more than that. But to get from Boise to another airport that we can land at, it would have had to be in the airport space or, or a taxiway or whatever emergency land on the runway. But I, I 
called our dispatcher. Our plan was at that point, we just diverted. Luckily I found it soon enough. We diverted to Salt Lake city and ladies and gentlemen, they just closed the runway <laughs> for some reason <laughs> in uh, Boise. But the lesson there is, I mean, you need to read your, not only read the notums, there could be such important information. there, like, you know, runway lights off at night or this runway is going to be closed or even you, you can't fly left pattern at this airport or what in which some airports you can't really tell by the sectional that if you come down to pattern altitude you're going to hit a mountain so <laughs> there's a lot of very very good information in the chart supplement the book formerly known as the airport facility directory and of course in the notums you got to look at that before you go flying it doesn't take that long i mean a lot of people skip it but it doesn't take that long and I encourage people to do it, especially now it's so easy on, yeah. on you know, the iPad. Well, I mean, I find that the notums I, I've gotten bitten enough times in the past that I'm, I'm getting good about notums, but the AFD and, and in some of the apps, the idea you have to go to a separate page to actually see a snippet of the AFD for that airport yeah. as opposed to what we're used to seeing, right? Here's all the frequencies, here's this, this, this. But in my case, again, without looking at the AFD, you, you don't see that, that. So here we are circling at night over dark, moonless night, VFR over yeah. an airport, trying to, oh, trying to look, in the a, look up the AFD, which is the only way we found the lights frequency. <laughs> wow. It's, yeah, yeah and it's, so that's, it's crazy. Yeah, the more information you can get about an airport ahead of time, obviously the better. And, and so study it. If you've not been to an airport and you're unfamiliar, uh, that, that's the lesson learned here. Look at the NOTAMs first, look at the AFD. I've not been to this airport. I'm gonna read up about it a little bit because there are a lot of little little hints and notes in there. And for flight, it's pretty easy to get to the AFD. You can even save it on half the screen if you want. Um, I wouldn't do that, but you can. And then it also, uh, for flight, uh, has uh i've totally lost that train of thought but i'm going to well, be teaching okay, i use like you anyway so <laughs> i'm going to be starting up next year some four flight um workshops that we'll be doing online and that's going to be you know i'll talk more about that kind of stuff there oh that's awesome yeah and, and so i mean it's a good point you know notams are one thing uh, uh that are really important i i i got i learned e even to get reminded again not that long ago i went up for for a flight just to Get, get the plane, you know, ringed out, check everything out before a long flight. And during that, while I'm up there, I thought, you know, I'm going to go get some gas over at this local airport that, uh, that I know has, has really cheap gas. I'm, I'm going to go, let me go do this. And because I hadn't really planned on it, it wasn't until I'm announcing on the radio and looking down at the runway, I see these big X's on the runway. And I'm like, I wonder what's going on at the airport. <laughs> Well, I can see we're in a, in a case of a diversion. You may not have a lot of time to go looking that stuff up. And, hey, the system worked. They put red at, big lighted X's out there, you know, for a reason. And, and that was a kind of another safety net to, to looking at NOTAMs. Yeah, but of course we shouldn't be in that position. And I think that's kind of the, the sort right. of the lesson learned in, in having to do with that and, and having to do with planning. I'll add one other there to ask you about, and that is one that doesn't show up in notams uh, uh, all the time, it, it, it's, it could sometimes, and doesn't certainly show up in AFD. And that is field conditions. If you are mm. actually, whether it's a weather issue or whether it's like a, a, a grass field. I know yeah. I landed years ago at an airport 
that that I put a heck of a a heck of a carrier landing show for who the, all the people at the restaurant there because there was no notum, there was nothing. I had actually checked stuff, but I hadn't called them. And it turns out that the grass had gotten insanely muddy because of a, a shower that had come through. I landed and slowed down, getting pulled forward in my seats. When I got out, our wheels were halfway into the mud. Oh my. And all I had to do was call and find out when there was a situation like that. But again, that's yeah. another one. No, no notums, no anything else, but a call. Yeah, it's so easy. There are other ways to find out about an airport. Definitely call them before you ever depart. Call them in route on the radio. You know, maybe there's somebody there. Not always, but uh, yeah. also a lot of airports are starting to get webcams. Not that that mm-hmm. would help with a soft feel, but your story reminds me. Of, I did. Well, I got you one better with the soft grass. Uh, you landed in it. I tried to take off in it. <laughs> and I got to tell you. Uh, I'll tell you, we made it. <laughs> I'll, I'll lead with that. But it was in a Mooney, and I decided to get a little Mooney Ranger, 180 horsepower that, you know, I had just got checked out in. So I'm all, hey, 180 horsepower. This is awesome. I was, you know, because I'm teaching in Cessna 150s. Uh, so I loaded up with uh, three of my favorite college friends and myself, and we went uh, to this grass field. And uh, landing wasn't a big deal, but taking off, uh, we went to take off out of there and it was, oh gosh, it was sketchy. One of those uh, sphincter clinching takeoffs and uh, luckily we made it, you know, that was a bad decision. I didn't do a weight and balance. I didn't look at the field condition. It had rained the night before. I didn't think about it. Didn't talk to anybody. Same thing. I mean, the, just taking for granted that everything's going to be right and going for it is not the way to go. Yeah. I, and, you, you know, you mentioned weight and balance. Uh, balance comes in there as well. I remember going on a trip once and I knew total weight wise we it wasn't a problem in any way. And I thought about, you know, oh, so am I going to do the, do the numbers or whatever? And while I was thinking, should I go and do this uh, without even thinking about it? These these other guys I was taking with me just piled themselves into the plane. Oh, this is cool. Let's get into the back of the plane. Uh, this is an A36. They they piled themselves in the back with no one in the front. And I saw the plane just go boom, down on the tail. They're like, is it supposed to do that, Jeff? I'm like, uh-oh, let me do the weight balance on this. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, balance is critical. Yeah. Um, you'd mentioned, you know, we were talking about runway conditions. Uh, anything that you've learned having to do with runway conditions, uh, with with sleet or with with snow, with other types of frost, anything else that that can affect things? Well, I had a takeoff. So I've had two of these takeoffs that really scared me. And that one I just told you about the Mooney was one. The other was uh, similarly, and I would not have guessed this, but I definitely learned a valuable lesson that snow on the runway itself adds significant drag. Uh, So I was flying a Learjet out of uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming airport, and it was snowing. We got the ice. We're ready to go. Everything's going. It's coming down pretty good. And it looked like, you know, you could see a fresh layer of snow on the runway. I didn't quite know its depth, but I tell you, on takeoff, I did not get up to speed to a point I'd been accustomed to getting up to speed. And I was beyond the point where I could safely reject. And I don't want to do that on a slippery runway anyway. So uh, we went for it. And but for the grace of God, got off the ground. But that is a lot of drag. Uh, you know, the, the Learjet, it was a Lear 55, which they call the Groundhog anyway, because it uses up a lot of ground. And uh, it's the same engines as the smaller Lear, but a bigger aircraft. But that's a lot of drag, a significant amount of drag. And when I researched it further, like at the airline where I work, we actually take a pretty significant penalty if there's 
you know, a half an inch of snow on the ground, and I think we have a limit of one inch. Uh, but the limit with, with a half an inch of snow on the ground, our takeoff weight is cut nearly in half. The maximum allowable takeoff weight is cut nearly in half, meaning with that much snow on the runway, we'd have to be nearly empty. Wow. Yeah. And that was surprising to me. I didn't know that. Do you, do you, uh, you kick off passengers when that happens? <laughs> no, uh, typically now we've gotten most of the airports out of which I fly. Uh, they're really good at keeping the runways groomed. Otherwise, we just won't take off. We'll wait till the runway gets plowed. And now with a lot of the multi-runway airliner type large aircraft airports, they'll be plowing one runway while using another. Then mm. they'll close that runway, plow it, and uh, you know switch back and forth. So I've not run into too many encounters except in my corporate flying going into smaller airports where you just don't quite get as much. And I just wouldn't take off with snow on the runway yeah. anymore. The, the other thing that comes to mind when you tell that story has to do with aircraft performance and kind of looking at performance charts. And, you know, one of the, so I have experienced that it's, you can look at temperature, you can look at your loading, you look at the distance of a runway and that kind of, you get used to that side of things. But I've had a couple experiences where it was not just warm, but really surprisingly humid. And mm -hmm. I, was shocked at the difference in performance, at how degraded the performance was simply due to humidity. Uh, and it seems to me that, um, you know, a lot of times when it comes to the idea of performance charts, I have heard so many uh, pilots and even instructors sort of write it off and say, if you're going to be close, you shouldn't even be doing this. So it kind of like, it, which that concept makes sense. But it doesn't necessarily, but, but in a way, they're kind of trying to discourage bothering to do the, the charts to begin with. Yeah. How are you going to know if you're close? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I guess so. I mean, but I mean, I think that goes back into the planning and into that performance. I, you know, we've spoken about it. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like really find out what the limits of the plane of your aircraft are in a safe environment. Like go to a runway that you're not worried at all about, but you should always know what your plane feels like at max gross. You should yeah. know how, to, how, to, how it performs. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. You should load it up with other people. I do that with, when I'm teaching someone to fly on 172, for example. We'll throw mm -hmm. a, a couple people in back and, and fly a really heavy airplane, and, and they can see it's much different. Some of them land much better when they're heavier mm -hmm. uh, and, and feel more stable. Uh, others, you know, like the high wing cesses are, are tougher to land with, with nobody in the back. So sometimes that helps. Uh, but I agree with you. You should know the limits of your aircraft and out toward the edges in a safe, safe way to, to, to check that. And the density altitude too, I would, you know, we'd take off at, at sea level with 2000 RPM and say, this is what it's going to be like at uh, uh, big bear or up at the el uh, high elevation airport taking off. And you, you know, you can impress upon them how slow it takes to get up to speed. What you miss there is the, uh, the delay in the airspeed indicator coming up in, on top of that because the air is thinner. So you're going to take a little longer for that to happen even, but you know, it, yeah, we need to go and try these things, get training on it. Uh, it makes a lot bigger difference on the performance than we think. Yeah. Um, so another another category that kind of puts a smile on my face with when we come when when you're talking about bad decision making is uh, is this concept called magical thinking <laughs> that will <laughs> probably be okay. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Like I'm sure. Which okay. So if I'm coming from the mechanical side of things, as as a mechanic, as an AMP and IA, I I think you know in terms of some of these things. Uh, and we've we've talked about some of this as well, where something will go wrong. Maybe you'll 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 experience a problem, but but then it's not there again. Like it's gone. And so you're thinking like. That it was just a transient thing. That little, it, itself. it fixed itself. It did. It fixed itself. Which, which you know, that that's got to be it. It was that was it. It was air. It was just a little bit of vapor in the fuel line. It was just a, a little. little bit of, yeah, exactly. I don't know what that bump was when the gear came up, but I haven't heard it again. It's probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. I, absolutely. And and it's easy for us to. We're biased toward going. I mean, we're going somewhere for a reason, and our mental MO is a bias toward getting to the destination. It's a bias toward seeing what we expect to see, expectation bias. There are all kinds of biases that we have that our mind tends to talk ourselves into, like justify like you did. I heard a little engine hiccup, but maybe it had to just be water. It's fine now. It fixed it. So, no, get that thing on the ground. It's not supposed to do that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. You know, one of the ones that comes up uh, a lot, and and this can also be a little controversial for people, I am not a fan of jump-starting aircraft, period. Uh, I I had, for multiple reasons, the first time, long before I was a mechanic, I experienced uh, a situation being young, dumb, stupid, and low hours, where I flew out on a trip where I was going outbound when it was daylight and back when it was night. And on the way out, I, yeah, I flew, everything seemed fine, everything was great. On the uh, Getting ready to come on the way back, the engine, you know, wouldn't turn over. And it just, you know, had, it, obviously the battery was run down. And, and someone was right there in the airport and offered to jumpstart the, the plane I was renting to get back. And I thought... I'll even put those handy plugs on there for you. Yeah, they make it so easy. Yeah. And this was <laughs> so the night we accepted it. We went and, and it jumpstarted the plane. Hey... You know, it turns out engines don't need batteries to run. So after the jump start, the engine's running fine and, and everything yeah. looked okay in the cockpit at that moment. Uh, it, it, and I'm climbing out and it's getting a little darker as the sun was setting and everything. And everything's um, going on auto dim. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is really great. I and, mean, you know, I didn't realize everything dims in the cockpit as it gets darker. <laughs> Avionics are starting to flicker. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wound up, you know, be losing everything, losing radios, look, lose, losing all the uh, instruments. Uh, not instruments. The engine was fine, but you know, barely getting a call out to ATC saying that I had an electrical failure, and uh, I got a visit after I landed from. Well, what actually happened is, I I thought I had gotten the call out. wasn't sure if I got the call out. As I went to turn to land, I found the airport uh, that I was going to divert to, a big airport where you could where the lights are really dim when it's turned off, but it's night, but, but not active. And I got myself lined up and I'm scared and I'm kind of coming in here and I'm no radio and a pickup truck pulls onto the runway in front of me. Oh, geez. Starts inspecting wow. the runway for, for, you know, foreign object damage. Perfect. And, um, and then all of a sudden I got lucky. I'm on short final. Obviously a radio call got through to them. Lights go on, airport lights come on. Landed fine, pulled off, and then had to spend uh, quite a while t talking uh, the uh, firefighters into not foaming the plane down. Um, <laughs> and it turned out it was it was a you know circuit breaker that I that, that I didn't know. I was again young, dumb, stupid, didn't know about it. 
Um, and so if someone's out there thinking, well, if you have an alternator, you, you should still have, would you still have your electrical components if the battery's dead, but your alternator's alternating? So it would, but in this case, what had happened is a portable GPS I was using, something, something arced in there and, and whatever happened, the main, it was the main that blew. And so uh -huh. the, it was the alternator circuit breaker that popped that was by your knee in a piper, the one yeah. that you cannot see unless you reach underneath the yeah. panel. Yeah. You know, great placement there. And um, yeah, you learn things the hard way, but things don't necessarily heal themselves. Yeah, and I thought you had told me also that it, that's bad for your battery. You're going to actually decrease the life of your battery by doing that. Very good point. So later on, as, as I've learned a lot more, of course, through the years about this and, and talked very much uh, uh, in depth and gotten a lot of education from my friends over at Concord Battery, um, you know, I've learned that you know, when, once you bring a battery down uh, past a certain point, you've permanently damaged that battery. It's never going to come back. Uh, once you get to, and they measure it in certain voltage levels, but you don't know that at the time that you're draining a battery to where it is, whether it is recoverable to full you know, capacity or whether it's been only slightly reduced in capacity or it's really, really far down. But the bottom line is if you've drained a battery, the right way to charge it is, is certainly not to jumpstart it and have the airplane power everything all at once and just hope it's all going to work out. Um, yeah. So, you know, the right way to deal with that is to charge the battery properly and have it capacity checked if you can, uh, wherever you are at your destination. And if you can't, do it when you get home. Because if you've depleted a battery, it is, there is, a, it, to, depending on the level you've gone, if it's deep discharge, there's a good chance you may have damaged it and it might be time for a new battery. Yeah, and with your alternator working, you may not know that you've totally ruined your battery. I guess till you start it, try to start the engine. The yeah, you'll see your ammeter plugged, you know, <laughs> pegged really high. Yeah. But um, you know, the challenge is you're you're doing well, but you don't have the reserve that you think you do. That's the real issue. Is why is your battery there, right? Your alternator can your magnetos are going to run your engine. Your alternator can power your aircraft in many ways. The battery's main job, other than you know, at, you know, balancing the system while it's running, it's really there for an emergency. It's really there for its capacity. Right. And so right. it's back. It's there it, for its backup. Yeah. Yeah. So if 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 the reality is you think you've got 45 minutes of battery, an hour of battery life, or whatever it is at this, and the reality is you have 15 minutes because it's barely hanging on and just barely got your airplane started. Um, yeah. That's not the way to go launching into the night. No. And that was something, you know, flying the uh, MD 80. We had, if you went down all lost all generators, you're good for like 15 to 20 minutes on battery power. And if you're flying IFR, you, you, that's how long you're going to have your instruments. You better find an airport and approach and shoot it uh, with that battery. But you know, if you turn off your pitot heat, the, you, you know, things high energy load like that, you can actually preserve it. Uh, for a little bit longer than than the backup or whatever it would have done otherwise. Uh, so if you can get rid of your high load items when that happens, that's always a good idea. Now with a Stratus and an iPad and ForeFlight, you know I can do the same thing. Get an emergency I, for four hours. I can you know get myself on the ground it, with the AHARS and the and the attitude indication on there. It's quite amazing what we can do now. Yeah. Yeah, very, very true. Um, but again, for anyone who's flying IFR on a regular basis or putting or at night or putting themselves into, you know, tough situations, I, I would ask the question, which I know a lot of shops don't do, which is when's the last time you capacity checked your battery? Yeah. Uh, and why not just replace it every few years 
flat out. I mean, I, I would think that they're good for two years, three years, or three, is there a standard I get there? Does it depend on how much yeah, you it use? It can be longer. It can be longer, but, but only if you, only if it's a known quantity, only if you know what you're actually doing. Um, Interesting. So, uh, oh, you know what? There's one other, I, I think, that also goes into the category of magical thinking in that. I wrote an AOPA article about this one once, and it was, I was coming into um, to Landon on short final. I I clearly smelled uh, that, that kind of acrid uh, electrical smoke smell for a second, but it was really brief, and I smelled it, and then it was gone. And... The I, I landed and I thought about you know what and I, I thought looking into this whatever but I could feel inside of me these you know you got the devil and the angel on your shoulders and you got one side you, you just it, it was so obvious that there were forces inside saying oh it, you know you didn't see anything obvious it's gone whatever it was is gone and then on the other side like no you're never flying this airplane until you track this down and figure out what that was now. That other side won out, and I really did the right thing and dig, dove deep into it. What I discovered was that the cable going to the the main bus bar uh, was loose. It was attached oh. by a bolt and a lock nut, and it was the long, wrong type of lock nut. It was a nylon insert lock nut instead of an all-metal one. So because it was loose, it was arcing, it was heating up a lot. Ooh. And what I smelled for that instant was the little nylon, you know, plastic part inside a lock nut poof, going up in wow. smoke, dripping on something hot and going out. And at that point, it let out a little puff of smell. And then the lock nut had no function anymore, had nothing left that it could do to, to stay engaged or locked onto anything. Wow. There was never going to be another warning until there was a major problem. If he didn't do it. So that clearly was one that if I had believed in the magical thinking, uh, I was setting myself up for some serious trouble. I only got one chance to smell that. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's abnormal. If red flag goes up, pay attention to it. Uh, we have to do that. And, and that's, uh, it's so easy not to, it's so easy to ignore that. And well, I was taxiing out one time and I, I thought I smelled something similar to what you're talking about, but it was faint and it kind of came and went. I'm in the run-up area checking everything. And I looked down and I noticed that the run, the, the, the landing light switch, this is in a 172, was fused in the on position. I mean, the switch wouldn't move. Wow. That along with smelling that smell, I'm like, enough for me. I, you know, I've had electrical fires on airplanes in flight. It's not fun. You don't want to have that. It's probably one of the worst feelings. Uh, and things you can have happen. So back to the FBO, the flight school where I rented it. And they said, oh, that's been like that for a while. I said, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, well, that's nice. Let someone else fly it. I'm not doing it. Uh, and when I wrote it up, they said, oh, could you not do that? Because then we have to ground the airplane. I'm like, then I'm doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Grounding the airplane. I couldn't believe I was told that. But people want to, you know, they got to keep running the mission. Got other people who want to fly the airplane. And... Uh, for whatever reason is motivating you, we need to take a good hard look at that money, you know, in this mm -hmm. case, got to keep that airplane flying. Yeah. I had someone ask me once uh, recently, actually, if it was okay, they knew that they had a leaking muffler. Yeah. Uh, and they asked me if it was okay for them to take it on a flight that they, they, well, I'm going to have it turned off. I'm going to have my windows open. I want to get it to, you know, where, where, where a mechanic is that I want to work on it instead of whoever's here. And it's like, yeah. 
you you have no idea how this is going to progress at this point. Yeah. You know, you, okay. you, another category, exactly, for, for I think impressing people is another category that people get in trouble, like buzzing uh, your friends or fr family's house. There have been so many accidents from that. <laughs> now now we're into our last category, stupid pilot tricks. <laughs> stupid pilot tricks. But the, the motivation is you want to impress. You think you're going to impress somebody. So, hey, watch this. Or, you know, here, hold my beer. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, that that's when the accident sequence started. Tell me like, your story. Right. Oh, so I, well, which one? Uh, I'll tell you one. And, and I think this goes to the young pilots out there who I think are more inclined to try to impress other people. They're, 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 they care more what others think. Or, and maybe it's not just younger. It's or older people with uh, young at heart. So this was a long, long time ago uh, in a land far, far away. And I'm not saying it was me, but it was high school uh, um, week where, you know, the, the rivals week where the rival football teams were going to play each other. So there were pranks being done on each school. And I can't remember what was done to our school, but um, somebody from my school who was a pilot, I don't remember who he was. He had a little airplane. It was cool. And he, uh, they decided to fill the aircraft up with ping pong balls of the color of their high school and go down low. I mean, truly fill up the airplane. When I say fill it up, the pilot gets in first, close the doors, open the windows, and just start dumping in about 2,000, 3,000 ping pong balls. Um, when you're young, you don't think, what if? As much as you do when you're old, and especially if you're yeah, a parent. That could never go bad. Yeah, like when my wife became a mom, she wouldn't like it when the kids would set their cup, you know, right next to the edge of the table. And so she'd move it over back to the center. And once they knew that it bothered her, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to put it right on the edge of the table just to drive mom nuts. But moms look at, oh, gosh, everything that could go wrong, they can find it and, and plan for it in advance. Well, we don't always do that. So, I mean, what if those ping pong balls had gotten behind the rudder pedals, which they did, um, from what I heard, that they, they were easy to get out of the way you know, when you're moving the pedals. Go over the <laughs> Rumor has it. Hmm? Rumor has it. <laughs> Rumor has it. Yeah, airplane and pilot full of full of uh, ping pong balls takes off, goes and flies low over the other school's football team during warm up, and and just drops all the ping pong balls <laughs> onto the field. It was now bad decision. Yeah, I mean that was a decision that pilot made to do that. Was it a bad decision? Yeah, it was. So we're not, not trying to tell a story to try to get people to do these things, but if you're going to do something stupid, what's motivating you? In this case, it was trying to impress other people or get attention or something like that. So like you said, stupid pilot tricks. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when you do those things, a lot of times you're also becoming a test pilot, right? You're doing some stupid things. You're putting yourself in, but you're experiencing for the first time, what's going to happen with all those ping pong balls with the airflow? when everything's going on there. I know someone that thought it'd be really cool to dump someone's ashes out of a plane and they came back looking like the rest of that person when that was done. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't know how it's going to turn out, don't do it. <laughs> I'm trying to think through it. That's not what? the time to figure it out, right? Yeah. Wow. That, that would be awful. Uh, I know there's yeah. a way to do it because I've heard of people doing it. Yeah, uh, there is. I think maybe do your homework, maybe tests on some flour. What would you, or sand or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Something with low risk? Somebody maybe. else's ashes? I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know either. Like I said, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to not, I like to stay right now. I, I just like to stay in the middle of the lane. That's exactly. Yeah. Then they say like, I think there, there's probably many different categories of areas that, that over time you, you kind of evolve and put yourself in more risk. I think, you know, in some ways, more experienced pilots perhaps uh, get more conservative about that. I wouldn't do some of the things that I remember from years ago. And it's not just because ADSB is now here to track us. Um, <laughs> it is a discouragement, but, though. It, yes. Yeah, no, that's why, but that's low why level I say flying, things like that. Uh, uh, now you're going to get caught no matter what. Um, yeah. But at the time, I, I look back, I would never do some of the things that I can imagine or or, or know of other people who have done. And, I, and I've even, you know, seen in a case where someone came back with, you know, missing a couple pieces from their plane from doing things like that. Um, like, oh, look at that. It didn't, wow, we had a whole wheel pant when we took off. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awful. And that's, I think it's important for pilots to take a good hard look at that and and uh decide make a conscious decision about these things and 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 constantly be thinking what could possibly go wrong and try to answer that try to come up with it what what could go wrong and stay ahead of it uh, a lot of pilots don't do that they should not get into an airplane like you and i get into our cars and, and then yeah. a lot of pilots who get into accidents that i've studied are the kind of pilots that get into an airplane like you and I get into a car. We just get in, take for granted everything's going to work, and don't pre-flight, don't plan. We just go, if the weather's bad, it really doesn't matter as much. Don't get into an airplane like you get into a car. That's a, I like that. that. That's really a great way of looking at it. And, you know, there, I think there's challenges at both ends of the spectrum of experience. I think there's challenges where people, you know, when you feel invincible uh, can, uh, early on in your in your flying career, perhaps can do stupid things. But also later on, you get complacent. You don't do things like we've talked about. You don't check things. You don't use your lists the same way. You feel like it's I've been so flying well. this plane so much, I can get into it. Like you said, yeah. like I get into a car. Whoa, you know, I, I've been helped so many times. Mm -hmm. Just stay disciplined by Jake and Ben, my two boys, because they're at that stage of their early development of flying where they're very, very rigid about that. This is how you do it because they love it. Yeah. But after, you know, a thousand hours or so, you're like, everything keeps working and I've been lucky <laughs> or maybe I've been good at pre-flighting, but you know, even the engine that failed probably worked fine for the thousand hours before that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it just because it has worked so well and everything has gone so right, doesn't mean it will. Nobody who got into an accident, planned on it or thought that they would yeah it is it is absolutely you know a, a critical part of everything and and planes are not static i will say from the from the maintenance side when you talk about that they they change they change even while they're sitting yeah. and um you find that out every annual inspection we're doing the annual inspection right now on the bonanza and uh we hadn't used the uh the heat in a while because it's been summer on that but once now we decided, you know, tr test the heat, open up the shutoff that's usually always there uh, during our, pre our, our check flight and boom, off goes the carbon monoxide alert in the, uh, uh, in the Lightspeed uh, Delta Zulu. Boom. Like, oh, wow. Okay. That's something we're going to look at during the annual inspection. And lo and behold, boom, muffler shot. Wow.
That's an, that's amazing. That, and that's a, a good advocacy for having some kind of carbon monoxide detection in your aircraft. A lot of aircraft have it built in its equipment, but I, you know, I carry a little portable one. In fact, it's sitting over there and you can read how many, I don't know what it is, parts per million or whatever it is and watch it go up. And I notice it with my, my cabin heat on, I'll see it go up a little bit in a friend's 210. And if you just open a window, man, it drops immediately, quickly. Yes. So it teaches you how quickly you can ventilate that carbon monoxide if needed, but you need to know if it's there. That's, you know, there's some horrible stories about that. Yeah, no, no question about it. And the technologies have come, has come very, very far, as you mentioned in a long time, it, it's in short time, it, it's very, uh, uh, easy now to get inexpensive monitors. As I mentioned, Lightspeed just came out with a headset that's got it built in that will talk to you yeah. and yeah. tell you the tell you the the level or what's happening uh, with an app that you can see all of it. But there's so many options available to to do this that I will say I can't imagine anyone that any justification for still flying with that little black dot that. Doesn't do the, anything to change color. Cardboard thing that changes colors from the circle. Yeah. You ever known anyone that uh, said, oh, hey, look at that. I was tired. But now that I look over there, I see the colors change on that little piece of cardboard. Yeah, no, it saved me. No, I, I've seen a lot of those in airplanes. And I don't even, when I look at it, I don't know what color it's supposed to be. So it doesn't help <laughs> me any. You know, thinking back to your thing, and I know we're, we're hitting a, uh, on the time here, but the uh, you were talking about not checking the notams and getting runway lights on. Well, or the airport facility directory or the chart supplement. So I had a flight once and I wrote about it. It's going to be in tomorrow's uh, NAFI e-mentor. So to my fellow NAFI uh, members, glad you're watching today and, and be sure to read your e-mentor tomorrow where I'll elaborate a little bit more on the story where I flew into an airport that was a smaller runway and uh, no tower because it was closer to where I was meeting my friend. And as I'm on short final at night, I noticed the threshold lights are twinkling. I thought, oh, wow, how pretty. I've never seen twinkling threshold lights. It's really cool. But uh, <laughs> then I got to think a little bit more and it kind of clicked. I said, there's something between those threshold lights and me. I don't like this. And I poured on the coals and did a go around. And this was the day before cell phones because we're going to go to the other airport with the big runway and the tower. But you couldn't. How do I tell my friends who are waiting for me here? That is a pressure that people can really cave into that. My friends are here. If I divert, they're going to have to go there and pick me. So what? Let them. But now we have cell phones. It's easy to, to tell. But when I did the go around, I noticed all the trees that I was skimming the tops of during that oh go around. A casual glance at the AFD or chart supplement would have revealed it would have said caution. Trees, tall trees at the end of each runway. And yeah. had I just looked at that, I'd have been aware of it. And I probably would have just planned to go to the other airport because I was mm -hmm. unfamiliar with that one. So if you're unfamiliar, at least at minimum, read the chart supplement. Yeah. Well, Brian, I, this has been absolutely wonderful and I want to make sure that we do this again. Uh, this does not, we, we've got so much we could talk about. This is made for more than one episode to say the least. Uh, but I, I really want to make sure as part of it also that I have some time where people find you online. And, and also, uh, I understand your, your dad just released a book. Yeah, he did it. He wrote another book. He rewrote one of the, the old blue golden guide to flying and an ASA just published it. a little shameless plug here, uh, illustrated guide to flying. If you have someone who wants to learn more about flying, this is kind of an intro to, and he even, uh, even signed it for me. Uh, Ooh. 
Wow. Yeah. Maybe I can get one of those. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm out of focus now. Now everybody's going to go back when they watch it on YouTube and rewind it and pause it and see what he wrote. And that's fine. But there's a really, really famous guy in here when he talks about aircraft mechanics. <laughs> Good looking guy. Yeah. Good looking guy. <laughs> yeah, my picture might have wound its way into that book somehow. But yeah, um, you can get that on Amazon. It's, uh, it just came out and it's a great summary of uh, all things aviation. So you've got great. So we'll so that's great. We'll put that in there. Now I know that of course I want to make people find you directly as well at the Proficient Pilot. Uh, tell me how people can find your site and of course your NAFI articles. Sure. Yeah, NAFI stuff. I do a lot for them. And if you're not a NAFI member, join. Even if you're not an instructor, that's National Association of Flight Instructors. I'm on the board of directors there, so I'm all for it. But my website is captainshift.com. You can also just type bshift.com. That'll take you to my website. And on there, I have presentations, webinars and seminars and what I'm doing and where. I've kind of been on a little hiatus recently, but I'm going to get back into it uh, next year. Uh, uh, I'm the proficient pilot on uh, YouTube and look for that. There'll be some fun stuff coming out there. But like I said, I'll be doing the uh, four flight, uh, hopefully with, with a friend of mine doing the four flight workshops where we kind of start planning a flight online live and see where the, the whole thing goes with questions. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for taking time to join us tonight. This has been a lot of fun. I definitely want to do it again. And uh, I, I think we can keep coming up with more stories to uh, hopefully impress upon people uh, what what we what can be learned from uh, these stupid pilot tricks and, and an evening of bad decisions. Well, I appreciate you having the faith and having me on your show. I truly appreciate that. Uh, and, and all the stories we told here were just made up for the purpose of lessons, of course. That's right. None of these actually happened. These right. were, no, we've done everything completely, perfectly, professionally, et cetera. <laughs> and is there a statute of limitations? Because whatever it is, we must be past it. Oh, we're way past that. If any of that would have happened, we'd be past it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. You bet. Have a good night. Have a good night. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. And I'd like to mention again, of course, we have our uh, promotion and uh, all you have to do is send an email to info at socialflight.com. And we've got our uh, the Mustang Globe and uh, that um, gift that comes along for uh, $99 to support social flight. Next week, we are back on Tuesday, December 6th uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern time, as always with Congressman Sam Graves, ranking House member of the Transportation Committee. Going to talk about his flying experience. He has a great aviation background, uh, as well as uh, all the topics that are so important in the governance of our country having to do with aviation. In addition to that, on Tuesday, December 13th at 8 p.m., what has become an annual tradition, we will be joined by the folks at NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. And this is going to be a really fun night and very informative because they open up and tell us some really cool things including what has been happening having to do with intercepts uh, in international borders, especially with Russia uh, during these uh, very tense times. Uh, they give us a lot of information and it should be a very informative show. So NORAD coming on December 13th. Then on Tuesday, December 20th, 
at 8 p.m. Treat Williams will be joining us again. He'll be coming back for a nice holiday show with actor Treat Williams. Uh, he's a pilot. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being and a good friend of mine, and it should be wonderful to have him on the show. Lastly, for the last show of our year, on Tuesday, December 27th, do not miss this one, Captain Ted Stryker from Airplane the Movie, Robert Hayes, will be here on Social Flight Live. Until next time, thank you again for joining us and helping support all of General Aviation. You all make a difference, and we really do appreciate it. And I wish you all blue skies. 